Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah Saeed. And David Bienenstock. And welcome back for another round of great moments in weed history. On this show, we discuss some of the lesser known but more fascinating facts in the long, long history of cannabis. Isn't that right, Bean? Absolutely. You know, we uh, we get into it. We get into the people. We get into the places. We get into what happened. You know, we're all part of this cannabis culture. It's got its own history. And, and if we don't tell it, uh, it's going to disappear. You know, people and people want you to believe that weed history started two years ago or even that weed history started in the 60s. But that's not true. right? Yeah, it goes way, way back. It goes back thousands of years. Ancient civilizations have used cannabis. It's tied into a lot of modern institutions that we recognize today into agriculture, into the economy, into spirituality. And we're just going to be exploring some of the funner and more interesting points of that long history. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, like Bob Marley said, if you know your history, then you'll know where you're coming from. Exactly. And we want to know. So, Bean, what do we have for this edition? Oh, are are you ready to take a journey Uh, back? I think I may be ready for... A journey back to a great great moment in weed history. Let's get let's get into it. Let's yeah. Get, let's get right into it. Dr. Lester Grinspoon's interest in cannabis dates back to 1967. Mm. So there's a very familiar name in cannabis. If you at all have studied the history of policy around cannabis in the United States, you may have come across Lester Grinspoon, who is uh, pretty well known in the cannabis world, right, Bean? Yeah, well known and 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 with good reason. And also, if you've ever been to uh, Amsterdam, there's a strain named after him called Doctor Grinspoon, which is I highly recommend. It's a wonderful purebred sativa strain. Uh, I've seen it around in the U.S., but you're, you're more likely to find it in Amsterdam. So interesting. So yeah. So where did Doctor Lester Grinspoon first intersect with uh, with cannabis? What do we got? Speaking of intersecting with cannabis, I see you rolling that. I am a indeed. Something up, and we uh, we of course advise you at home uh, as your weed advisors. Now would be a good time. Yeah, you this can, is. We need to have a sound that indicates when it's time to like you know light your J and take a hit. Well, then it would just be sort of a constant dinging. I guess. <laughs> It'd be hard to hard to hear. So his his interest in cannabis dates back to 1967, the year he endeavored to research the subject. Sufficiently enough to convince his best friend, who just happened to be Carl Sagan, to stop getting blazed all the time. No kidding. So Carl Sagan, of course, you know, now known to be one of the, one of the great geniuses, you know, scientific geniuses who, uh, you know, talked about, who spread word on the, uh, you know, the great things that psychedelic drugs and cannabis can help you understand about the world around you. And if you've ever seen the original Cosmos series, it's exactly what he does in it. And NDT, of course, Neil deGrasse Tyson, one of his disciples. Also just came out for for weed legalization. NDT did, no kidding. Yeah, he got asked about it. It was kind of an off-the-cuff thing. 
and he got asked about it and it was on tape and and he said yeah it's you know logical and scientific and sound to legalize weed. See? Right, that's a paraphrase. But. Science. And, you know, shout out to the reporter who asked him that question because, you know, we know that that colleague of ours out there is out there asking the right questions to the right people. Absolutely. And then, you know, talking about uh, Cosmos and Carl Sagan and being trippy, my favorite quote from the original Cosmos series, which uh, will give you a little idea of where this guy's coming from. Um, Carl Sagan said... If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Ah, yes. I remember this quote. Now, that's definitely extremely lofty. You know what I mean? But also, weirdly, think about the time that this statement was made in. Here's Carl Sagan, a guy making a TV show about like some serious cosmology, like some deep science. And you have to somehow translate that to this wide audience. What do you do? You bring up apple pie and you somehow connect it to the universe. <laughs> well done, Sagan. Yeah, and I think also he was somebody who wasn't afraid to be weird, who who was a person of hard science. You know, he's not, uh, you know, he was a, a part of the scientific establishment. He wasn't a, an outsider figure. Um, but, you know, he was also really interested in the weird edges, bleeding edges of science. And I think... Uh, cannabis uh, probably played a lot. Ha- cannabis probably had a lot to do with that, and you know, we just we just grabbed some lunch before doing this, and we were talking about aliens and trippy shit, and you know, yeah. Shout out Graham Hancock, <laughs> a friend of the show. It's interesting that I think what Carl Sagan understood is that there is a weird connection. The connection that it's really hard for us to make as humans is the one between inner space and outer space. You know, you're like, well, I'm unlocking things in my mind, you know, using psychedelic drugs. I'm trying to understand the universe. What's the connection? You know, and I think there's probably very few people in history who could really sort of conceive of that. I think Carl Sagan is a guy who could or could come close. You know what I mean? Yeah. Meanwhile, he's got this guy, Lester, pestering him to not smoke weed. Getting back to Carl for a second. And then, you know, they're, so they're, they're both working at Harvard. Uh, Carl Sagan is, is, is well known as an astronomer, but he's not famous Cosmos household name Carl Sagan at this point. Yeah, they're both professors at, at Harvard. Um, so while the internationally renowned astronomer, best-selling author, and future host of Cosmos never publicly acknowledged his copious weed smoking, Sagan did partake frequently and enthusiastically in private, invariably encouraging his straight-laced companion, Lester, an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, to join in, which he didn't, at least at first. Huh. So look at that, man. Can you imagine that Carl Sagan is like, hey, smoke weed with me, and you say no? Oh, my God, I bet. I bet he looks back on that and is like, what was I thinking? Well, yeah, I mean, and and said no a lot. You know, Carl, this was like their, their back and forth was, uh, so their back and forth is, is is Lester saying, hey, you know, this, this marijuana is really bad for you. And Carl saying, why don't you try some? Yeah. And, you know, th- this is the thing, man. If you're going to, you know, if you're going to down talk something, you should probably try it. You know what I mean? I'm saying at least once. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, uh, you know, for posterity. Yeah, there's extremes to that. 
<laughs> so so Lester is, is is saying no. So this this comes from um, I interviewed him uh, for uh, a story. He was a longtime friend of High Times when I worked there. I, this story I actually interviewed him for Vice about his his friendship with Carl Sagan. Uh, this is Lester Grinspoon speaking. As a physician, I saw all that smoking going on, and I was really concerned about it. I suffered from a kind of arrogance that sometimes afflicts physicians. Doctors are supposed to automatically be experts on drugs, so I found myself spieling off the stuff that the government was saying, telling this brilliant person that I was concerned about marijuana's detrimental effect on his health, because I truly believed pot was a very harmful drug. Yeah, and that's, you know, he's just a product of one of the most successful propaganda campaigns in history, you know, that essentially told people falsely that cannabis is poisonous. You know what I mean? So from his perspective, he's trying to preserve what he sees as a great mind, you know, like good on him for recognizing that. But clearly still a lot to learn when it comes to the truth about cannabis. Yeah, I would say the uh, the shortcut is he's being a really good friend and a very ignorant doctor. You good know? call, yeah. He is genuinely very concerned. So, um, so he believes pot is a very harmful drug. So, and this is what makes him different and special from a lot of other people who fell into that same propaganda. So instead of sparking up, Dr. Grinspoon decided to visit the Harvard Medical School library, prepared to spend as much time as necessary putting together a well-referenced argument against grass, one that would demonstrate a medical and scientific basis for the plant's prohibition. Wow. So he's about to embark on an impossible task. I think I can, you know, probably think of some of the things he's going to come across that are going to change his mind, right? Um, Because really, you know, and in fact, if this is your view currently today, I encourage you to try and write this article. And you know what? Like I was saying before, hey, try something before you demonize it. You know what? Research something before you demonize it. I think that's better put because, you know, like, of course, when you when you look into it, when you look into almost anything, you realize that your views on it were based on the superficial information that you had before. So he goes to the library. Um, and he's like, Carl's a man of science. I'm a man of science. He's pulling got, out books. He's pulling out. Yeah, this is old library, old studies, all old, old medical studies that had been done and suppressed. And, and he finds them. And so instead of finding the hard data he'd expected, however, Grinspoon had an epiphany. He'd been brainwashed about cannabis, as had just about every other citizen in the United States. Yeah, see, because there is actually scholarship before prohibition, Western scholarship, on the efficacy of cannabis, on cannabis for all sorts of you know medical uses, anti-inflammatory, analgesic, as an anesthetic. You know what I mean? And it's been used as a seizure medicine for thousands of years, you know, before the United States prohibited it in China. So he's just discovering that there is an iceberg, you know. To discover, yeah, and he's this. You know, it's 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 one thing to discover that there's benefits to this plant medicinally. He discovered and was was cool enough, for the want of a better word, to realize, oh, this is a conspiracy. He's open minded. He was yeah. open minded, and he went where the evidence went. So he realizes he's brainwashed, and uh, so four years later, 
despite facing pressure at Harvard not to touch the subject. And this actually ended up costing him his professorship. Um, They really did not want him to publish this book. Um, But he published a book in 1971 to document his findings called Marijuana Reconsidered. The exhaustively researched best-selling book described a decades-long government propaganda campaign undertaken to keep marijuana illegal at all costs. And at the time that this came out, it was essentially considered a conspiracy theory, right? Like, was there like, you know, he's he's over there getting shit from Harvard and probably, you know, a lot of the academic community who thinks that he's like gone and, you know, gone in some insane direction. But I mean, like at the time, what was the reception to this kind of book publicly? Well, yeah, and uh, Harvard made it quite clear that they did not want him to research this subject. They did not want him to publish this book. And he took great offense at that, not just as a doctor and not just as somebody who uh, is interested in cannabis, but as an academic. He really, really shook him that an institution he strongly believed in Uh, Harvard Medical School was going to tell him, in essence, don't pursue the truth. Yeah, that's a very weird thing. And I think like one of the scarier things about the anti-cannabis propaganda campaign is that people started religiously adhering, people of science started religiously adhering to total falsities about cannabis that were raised for political reasons. Now, Nowadays, when we find out that an argument is politicized for some reason, it's thought to be completely faulty. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, there's a political motivation for, uh, you know, uh, pushing laws that make it easy to do fracking or whatever. Right. And we're like, okay, well, that's like, you know, that's totally like a negative thing. Here is something that is completely was completely political. Its prohibition is completely political. And we know that now. You know, and we perhaps even knew this like, you know, 10, 20 years ago. But of course, you know, institutions have yet to really graduate to a, you know, a level of uh, a thinking on this that's like, you know, that takes into account all the information. The freaking New York Times didn't endorse cannabis legalization until just a couple years ago. And they used to run all kinds of prohibitionist bullshit yellow journalism. Absolutely. And their and their whole takeaway from that was to congratulate themselves yeah. in 2014 because they figured out weed should be legal. Yeah, 2014 and is like, that's like that's 80 years too late. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the other thing is if you're in medical school right now, you're learning little to nothing about cannabis as a medicine and you're learning little to nothing about the endocannabinoid uh, system that is like one of the most important underlying systems in your body. Um, and it's just still not even being taught to people in medical school now, never mind your doctor who graduated from medical school 5, 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, this approach to medicine that's all about, you know, taking these natural remedies and breaking them down to their chemical form in some way or synthesizing them. And, you know, I think that things that are considered uh, pseudoscientific or homeopathic medicine, right, 
are cast aside very quickly before we actually understand the science behind them. And cannabis is a great example of that because we were barred from understanding it for decades. And now that we are, well, I think pharmaceutical companies today are eyeing it as hungrily as a lot of other industries are. It's a fairly obvious truth that cannabis is a safe and therapeutic substance for a lot of people. That's easy to figure out. There's evidence everywhere for it. And so for the medical establishment to be able to deny that for so long, forget about the criminal justice system. They have their own shitty reasons for this. Yeah. You know, but the and medical that, establishment, you ask yeah. them why, like, why are you not true to the, the science that underlies your entire discipline, you know, by understanding every substance? Ethnopharmacology is a very real thing. So you're telling me ethnopharmacology then has this barrier in it that's based on laws made about drugs in the 19th, in the 20th century. That's going to stop the scientific understanding of these things. What are you doing? And then, you know, the, the thing not to lose sight of is, is the toll to be paid is in human suffering. So you, you asked how the book was, was received. So um, it, it's, it's like a sensation when it's published uh, because in living memory, nobody had challenged, nobody from the establishment had challenged uh, the propaganda against marijuana for a long time. This is 1971. You know, people were smoking a lot of pot, but it's very different. Here's a Harvard Medical School professor. Um, um, so the book was a sensation when published. In addition to an authoritative scientific refutation of the many myths then commonly accepted about cannabis, it also included an essay from a man in his mid-30s identified only as Mr. X. It's Carl Sagan. Oh, okay, sweet. Carl's like, oh, so you can imagine how the tables have turned. You know, not not in a bad way. Carl Sagan has now won over Lester Grinspoon. Yeah. And he's very excited that he's going to write this book. Um, but he himself has remained in the cannabis closet. He doesn't want to suffer the same fate as Lester Grinspoon. And you know what? There's no shade on you, Carl Sagan. You made your contributions. You know, you didn't have to be a martyr like your homie was. It goes to show that... Even, you know, places of enlightenment like Harvard weren't going to accept these different points of view, you know. But anyhow. This is, uh, this is what Carl Sagan wrote in the book under a pseudonym. And I, and I think it's just, um, you know, you and I both have read quite a lot about cannabis. And I, I think this is one of the cooler passages ever really written about uh, cannabis, especially when you know it's coming from uh, Carl Sagan. Yeah. I do not consider myself a religious person in the usual sense, but there is a religious aspect to some highs. The heightened sensitivity in all areas gives me a feeling of communion with my surroundings, both animate and inanimate. Sometimes a kind of existential perception of the absurd comes over me, and I see with awful certainty the hypocrisies and posturing of myself and my fellow men. And at other times, there is a different sense of the absurd, a playful and whimsical awareness. Both of these senses of the absurd can be communicated, and some of the most rewarding highs I've had have been in sharing talk and perceptions and humor. Cannabis brings us an awareness that we spend a lifetime being trained to overlook and forget and put out of our minds. Wow. Yeah, no, that, that's very interesting. I think it is like, 
on a lot of people's spiritual journeys, you know, because you start using cannabis, you know, after you have some level of cognition about what your beliefs are in the, you know, the non-physical, you know what I mean? It kind of starts to modify or undo some of those like traditional spiritual beliefs that you might have, like once you start using this stuff, you know. And it, that's why I think, you know, in your mind, you almost assign to the highs like a sort of like religious or, or spiritual uh, factor. You know what I mean? That there's like a part of that experience that because you're, uh, you know, because you grew up in a certain way, you have to like, incorporated into your life within that framework, you know? And it becomes this new thing. That becomes your religion in a sense, you know? Certainly spirituality, you know? And then what about this idea that um, he can see with awful certainty the hypocrisies and posturing of myself and my fellow men? Yeah, that's a really positive spin on what a lot of people construe as like paranoia or a bad trip is almost like, you know, suddenly realizing the absurdity of everything you know you do but i think more than being like oh this is weed inducing paranoia it's weed showing you stuff that you should already know in that these constructs that we live in are you know that is the pollution that is the toxic thing you strip everything away it's this person and this plant and these chemicals that you know engage with your brain in such a tailor-made way you know like What's wrong is everything else around us, not our communion with the plant. You know what I mean, in a sense. But that's a really interesting way of him for him to put it, you know, in terms of like this is, you know, you don't have to take it as paranoia. You don't have to take it as like a negative experience, even if the thoughts that it's provoking in your mind or uncovering your mind seem negative in your normal day-to-day context. And even if it's a negative perception of yourself, Because I think a lot of people get sold on cannabis to try it like, this is going to be fun and you're going to feel good. And a lot of times that's what cannabis is about. But sometimes it's that asshole check on yourself, which isn't as fun. Yeah. But but long term, I think it's a big benefit. And you can't fear the pain associated with it. It's not like in cannabis, it's something really mild. If you do something more intense, you know what I mean? You might have to go through you know, a difficult time to enjoy a really good time, you know, depending on what psychedelic you're on or something. And weed is just like a tiny dose of that. You know what I mean? It's like breaking through in some way the negativity or the pain or whatever to get to the positivity. But at the same time, I think a lot of people's experience with cannabis is simply positive, you know, and there's not this sort of journey that goes with it. That's what makes it a nice everyday psychedelic, you know, in this yeah, and I think that's also that's a thing that you go through and then you you go through it. You know, if 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 you smoke cannabis and it makes you have negative thoughts about yourself, those negative thoughts are there all the time and you're suppressing them. And and what your brain is trying to tell you is, "Hey, this is a this is a safer space where you can think those thoughts about yourself that that you don't want to think." And you're in this cannabis cocoon in your brain and we'll deal with it a little bit. Um, And so if that's been your experience, that doesn't mean that that's always how you're going to experience cannabis. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, and and it's also, look, regardless of that experience, enduring it has never 
hurt anyone physically. Enduring it has never killed anyone. Enduring it, in fact, is probably, if you're having that experience, an exercise that your brain maybe needs, you know? So it's a good muscle to, to exercise. But yeah, anyhow, back to Dr. G. Yeah, so that's, you know, so continuing um, with Carl Sagan's uh, Mr. X take, Sagan also praised cannabis as a means of cerebral expansion. He described making a breakthrough in understanding, quote, the origins and invalidities of racism in terms of Gaussian distribution curves while taking a shower with my wife while high. Interesting. So the guy basically, uh, you know, made the uh, inarguable uh, argument against racism while he was high and naked with his wife. That's great. How many awesome things could possibly converge (laughs) in one moment? You know what I mean? Like, the guy's having an awesome moment. He's taking a nice hot shower. You know, they're in Boston. I'm assuming it's cold out. He's there with the love of his life. He's having a great time. He's high as shit. He's smoking weed. You know, it's like that's just to compound the awesomeness of this moment. And then he comes up with the irrefutable argument against racism. You know what I mean? Which we all know exists if somebody would just take the time to articulate it and understand it and receive it with rationality. And here you go. Breaking ground. Okay, so um, then he not only does this, he goes on as as Mr. X to vigorously defend the validity of such pot-fueled revelations. And this is Carl Sagan writing again. There is a myth about such highs. The user has an illusion of great insight, but it does not survive scrutiny in the morning. I am convinced that this is an error and that the devastating insights achieved when high are real insights. Oh, yeah, 100%. And and in fact, like, you know, when you sort of seep back in to your daily life and, you know, that sort of brilliance of, you know, uh, like the world around you fades a little bit. You know what I mean? It's... uh, I think one of the hardest things to come to terms with is the fact that you can't maintain that thinking. You can't remember, you know what I mean, how how your mind was thinking when you were tripping. You know what I mean? And, and that's such a crazy thing. Like, no matter what, at some point, you're back in this sort of mundane, you know, gray world that we live in. You know what I mean? But it is true. For a second, you get to, like, you know, you get to see the heavens. You know, you get to taste the food of the gods, as it were. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things we know scientifically is that cannabis uh, helps you in making connections between two thoughts or ideas that might not be easily connected. Um, And sometimes that makes you forget where your keys are. Yeah. But sometimes that makes you disprove racism. Yeah, in in the shower or whatever. Well, this is, he he goes on (laughs) along these these lines. The main problem is putting these insights in a form acceptable to the quite different self that we are when we're down the next day. Some of the hardest work I've ever done has been to put such insights down on tape or in writing. The problem is that 10 even more interesting ideas or images have to be lost in the effort of recording one. Mm, Yeah, because you know why? Because language is not complex enough to keep up with the thought processes that occur when you're under the influence of cannabis or any other psychedelic. 
You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing. That's why it's like you say, oh, I wrote a bunch of stuff in English when I was tripping, but I read it later. It doesn't make any sense. That's because English is not the language, the definitive language of your mind. You know what I mean? Like that's uh, maybe I don't know what language is. Maybe no earthly language can truly, um, you know, capture those kinds of thoughts. But I remember, you know, in college, I had a philosophy teacher who was like uh, made this assertion to the class that, you know, if you can't verbalize something, then you haven't truly grasped it in your mind. And I was like, I don't think that's true at all. He was like, well, like, you know, what thoughts have you had that you can't verbalize into like, you know, concrete language, right? And what I said to him was, have you ever done LSD? And he was like, no, I haven't. And I was like, well, in that case, I have had thoughts, right? That I couldn't possibly verbalize in any way to convey to you unless you personally had that experience. What the guy did not know, and he said, you know, he like, whatever. He was like, you're full of shit. What he did not realize that at that very moment, I was on LSD. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had been tripping all night and I was sitting there in the class and I was like, there's no way I can explain to you what I'm fucking experiencing right now, essentially. You know what I mean? And there isn't. Language is limited. Language is most definitely limited. And I think the other thing is, so he's he's saying, you know, the problem is you have to let go of 10 more interesting thoughts to get one down. That seems like a Carl Sagan number. Yeah. I'm going to say for the average person, maybe two other thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them is like about food. Yeah. One of them is like, what are we going to get to eat later? Yeah. And the other one could be a profound epiphany. Yeah. Along true. with disproving uh, racism. But Sagan used to do like 10, 12 epiphanies at once. Yeah. You know He's like I mean? the guy at the gym putting up reps. Yeah. In his mind with nobody spotting him. Just. Yeah, man. Can you imagine with that sweet haircut of his? <laughs> the, like sweet Sagan 70s haircut. Man, it was a good look, you know? Yeah. I wish there was. I wish that was still. Uh, I, I wish I lived in a time when Carl, uh, when Carl Sagan was a sex symbol. Yeah. Right. With his turtleneck and shit. He was dope. Um, and and quick aside at the time, this is 1971. Uh, Lester writes in the book. Oh, and this gets to the like disproving racism thing. Yeah. Uh, he says, with all that is known and proven in this book, I am quite certain that marijuana will be legal within five years everywhere in the country. Oh, wow. He, he still thinks like, oh, well, nobody knew the facts. Yeah. Now that they've got the facts. And Sagan says to him, I loved everything about the book, but I think you're much too pessimistic that it's going to take five years. Wow. And you know what? This was in the 70s. I mean, you know, the 70s saw some change in policy. You know, a bunch of states decriminalized cannabis, you know, at a state level in the 70s. So it's only like a fine for an ounce or whatever. But there was really no meaningful change for decades. In fact, the war on drugs was stepped up under Reagan and under Bush. You know what I mean? So it's like. And it's, under Clinton. And just, under just, Clinton. Hey, right wing listeners. Yeah, and just, under let's Bush just again. talk about pot and yeah. we're going to be fine. We don't... Yeah, that's right. Anyhow. Okay, so um, the book comes out and Dr. Grinspoon becomes an internationally recognized cannabis expert and a tireless advocate for medical use and total legalization all without ever getting high himself, despite many, many offers. Wow. So to this point, I mean, okay, Carl Sagan, obviously, 
you know, has tried to get the guy high. And in fact, he is 180'd on his views on cannabis. And yet years have gone by and the man still will not hit it. You know what I mean? I can understand the trepidations. You know, a lot of people will hype things up. You know, it's like the new Star Wars movie, you know? They'll be like, oh, it's great, but I don't want to hype it up. But uh, it might not make you, might, this might piss you off, but that's really great about it. I don't know. And then you're like, you know what you say? You're like, you know what? Forget it. I'm not even going to see the goddamn movie because, uh, you know, what's uh, all the thing about it? Now I'd say, you know, I'm fine with this reality now where I haven't seen Star Wars. So he's like, you know, and his mind's in the right place. But, you know, he... Uh, He's gonna smoke. I, I sense that he's gonna smoke. So let's see. Let's see where this is going. Spoiler alert. He gives it away. He's gonna smoke. Okay. So this is this is again from my my interview with him. So this is Lester, uh, Doctor Grinspoon, in his own voice. As I researched and wrote about marijuana, I knew I wanted to have this experience. Ding. Mm-hmm. Um, But I also knew that if the book was successful, I'd be called upon to appear before committees and testify in court, and I didn't want to compromise my position, so I waited. Ah, so he's got a pretty sound reason for not smoking at this point. You know, it's going to complicate his overall mission. He can't have that. literally taking one for the team. Yeah, he is. Because he really did want to try it. Yeah, but he's the designated driver. You know what I'm saying? He's like the responsible one. Um, then about a year and a half after the book came out, I had to testify before a state Senate committee in Massachusetts. And one of the senators who was clearly hostile to my position asked, have you, Dr. Grinspoon, ever used marijuana yourself? To which, without planning it, I replied, Senator, I'll be glad to answer that question if you can tell me whether if I answer in the affirmative, that would make me a more or less credible witness. Oh, and what did the guy say? Uh, Well, the senator stood up on the dais, pointed an accusing finger at me, and declared, Sir, you are being impertinent. Oh, okay. So he doesn't want to answer his question, essentially, is what the, the senator is saying. Yeah. And I mean, like, how typical is that? Because, you know... What that guy's trying to elicit is silent judgment against this witness. So it's like, you know, really whether or not it makes him look more or less credible is in the eye of the beholder. You know, but just getting that information out there, that's like saying, you know, like, look, you know, I remember it when, uh, you know, like the tragic case around Trayvon Martin was happening. They released information that he had marijuana in his system. Now, that's not information that they're not saying, oh, this makes it, you know, more okay for the fact that he was killed or this, you know, what are they trying to say? Oh, they're just saying that he had marijuana in the system, you know, when he died, right? So it's like, you know, you know the the types of uh, themes and tropes that you're eliciting when you say something like that. You know the types of fears or the types of people you're trying to appeal to when you say something like that. You know what I mean? So to be like, do you use marijuana? Oh, I don't know. Out of context. You know what I mean? Like, of course, that's going to hurt somebody's credibility in the eyes of people who are under the influence of propaganda. You know? Absolutely. I can remember one of the first times I went on uh, the radio as a like High Times representative, you know, as an editor at High Times. First question. Are you high right now? Yeah. Which like, yeah, probably was. But it's just, you know, it's this just 
it's the the system being systematically dicks and you know i think lester's response is pretty pretty interesting right yeah no absolutely man he's kind of cornered the guy you know what i'm saying like you know obviously he made him lose his cool well it goes it goes on so yeah and so for and and impertinent you know we had a much more genteel politics back then and pertinent was a Harsh words. Yeah. It's not like now. Um, so then this guy calls him impertinent, uh, this state senator. Then he stormed off. So I went home to my wife and said, Betsy, the time has come. We're going to smoke. Oh, nice. He finally got his chance to do it. Yeah. He's like, fuck it, man. Yeah. And Betsy, I'm guessing, had not smoked at this point either. Betsy had not smoked at this point either. And But she it, was down as well. She's down. She's, you know, uh, she was, I, I, I met Betsy as well. She's also an academic, uh, you know, she, so she followed along with all his research in real time. She's, you know, they're very, uh, so she's just as curious to try it as he is. And they have agreed to wait. And he's like, boom, done. it's time. So what's the first blaze like Fuck for Dr. Time. G? Um, so Ever since Marijuana Reconsidered came out, people had been asking me, wait, you wrote a book about marijuana and you've never tried it? And I'd reply, well, I wrote a book about schizophrenia too, and I haven't tried that. <laughs> good answer. Well, so Grinspoon's full of uh, good, witty answers. That's what we're gathering. He's in the long line of those, like, that, like, doctor humor. Right, you right, know right. What I mean, he's a funny guy. Yeah. Um, but then that very night, we went to a party and smoked until everyone else in the circle, including Carl, waved it off. So it's nice that he's like, all right, Carl, it's time. Yeah, no, totally. Long, man. long time coming for Carl. Yeah. I'm sure he rolled up something. <clears throat> he pulled special. out that special jar. You know what I'm saying? Some of that upstate New York weed. Wasn't Carl Sagan at Cornell? Later he was. Later in life. This is still up at Harvard, huh? This is still at Harvard. No kidding. Um, Carl waved it off. They were all apparently stoned while Betsy and I felt nothing. Oh, so he's saying Carl waved it off. So they smoked until Carl was like, I'm done. Yeah. Oh, damn. Okay, cool. So, you know, look, Sagan has obviously got some power lungs. You know what I mean? So if he's tapped out, Grinspoon must have had his fair share, you know? Well, did you feel it the first time you, you, you smoked? I did not, actually. I didn't the first two or maybe three times I smoked. First time that I felt it was at a warped tour, ninth grade. But yeah, that uh, before that, I, I definitely tried it. I mean, so did, did Grinspoon try it, feel it the first time he tried it? No. So he's saying everybody else, Carl's like, woof. And, and him and Betsy are looking at each other. So neither of them are feeling it. Betsy neither. Neither of them. Betsy and I felt nothing. At which point I began to get very anxious. Could I have written a book about a grand placebo? But he must have heard. I mean, I'm sure Sagan was like, hey, you might not feel anything first time. That was common knowledge at the time. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So he says, when I got home, I couldn't sleep. Betsy had to remind me that my own research revealed Many people don't get high the first time they smoke. Yeah, yeah, duh. Come on, G. Yes. You know you're good. But anyhow, wait, so what happened? So um, Carl in his Mr. X essay said he'd had to try something like six times to experience a high. So the next weekend we smoked again and it still didn't work. 
But then, I think we're coming up to our great one of our great moments in weed history. But then the third time, I remember after the joint, Betsy and I were standing around with another couple in the kitchen, eating a Napoleon, the four of us passing it around. And you know that viscous material between the layers? It kept sliding back and forth, threatening to fall on the floor. We were having a hilarious time. So Betsy asked, where did you get this Napoleon? It's unbelievably good. We've never had anything like it. And when they named the bakery, we were surprised to discover we'd eaten their Napoleons many times before. Yeah, but you never tasted it like that, Lester. That is what stoned eating is all about, man. You taste things like as if you're tasting them for the first time. That's incredible. And it was a Napoleon. That's a good first snack. So this was the second time he smoked, huh? This is the third time he smoked. Third time he smoked. First time it worked. Working for him, working for Betsy. They are loving this Napoleon. I feel like those first couple times, you're just like filling up your endocannabinoid system that's been like bone dry for your entire (laughs) life, you know? And it just like, you know, it stacks up. It's like, you know, and then finally you have that surplus hit, you know, and you're like, here's some extra shit, you know? So that's like, then that you get high on. That's so wild to think. And, you know, that one of the biggest, greatest advocates for cannabis waited years and years, despite multiple joints being passed to him from the Carl Sagan, did not try cannabis until much later in life, until, you know, until he'd gotten over some major hurdle that was preventing him from actually doing it. And I'm guessing he enjoys it, right? He Does he still get down? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, he definitely still gets down. And uh, even this, the description of this night goes on a little bit. Oh, shit. Let's hear it. So so meanwhile, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band was on the hi-fi, a record I'd actually heard many times. My son David would put it on and say, Dad, you ought to get your head out of the Baroque and listen to the Beatles. But I didn't see the appeal. Until that night, under the influence of marijuana, when I truly heard the Beatles for the first time, and it was like an auditory implosion, I couldn't believe it. And a little side note, because we may hit this on another episode. A few years after this, John Lennon was was put up on trial by the federal government. He was living in New York City, and they were trying to um, um, send him back to England. Deport him. Deport him. Thank you. Yeah. Um, By the way, I think it's time to roll up the second joint. Yeah. That's when I start to uh, misplace common words. Yeah. It's time to roll up the second joint. We're going at it. they tried to deport him, and he had Dr. Grinspoon uh, testify in his trial as an Whoa. expert witness on cannabis, and he ended up playing a pretty pivotal role in helping John Lennon win that trial. Oh wow, that's amazing! Yeah, I think we're gonna. I think enough said on that one. Because, yeah, yeah, uh, that's a whole. That's, we, an, that's might, an episode, right? Yeah, there. I'm gonna slow play that one. It won't be anytime soon, but uh, yeah. I don't want to get too into that one right now. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he he does John Lennon's music opens his mind, and and a few years later he he re, he returns the favor. Um, so coming out of this, uh, you know, obvious first experience, um, convinced that cannabis has many benefits even beyond its medicinal efficacy. Doctor Grinspoon launched the website marijuanauses.com along with a call 
for people from all walks of life to contribute their own stories of how cannabis enhances their existence. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so this is like, you know, probably, I mean, I would guess the first time that somebody's cataloging uh, people's experiences with cannabis post-prohibition, right? So it's like, Things that, you know, I, I feel like even the data on how many people use cannabis, you know, at this point or before this point is probably pretty skewed because a lot of people wouldn't admit, even in an anonymous survey, that they use cannabis, you know, because it was that frowned upon. You know, obviously, look, there's like prestigious academic institutions like Harvard are, you know, are firing people for advocating for cannabis, you know. It's not something that, uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine it was easy to find people willing to talk about it at first, you know what I mean? But I also think that when they got participants, it was probably very diverse, you know? Yeah, and it was a lot, you know, a good a good parallel to just kind of the idea of coming out of the closet really changes society's perceptions. Mm -hmm. And that's what he was encouraging people to do. Mm -hmm. And he was also kind of reframe things by talking about enhancement. Uh, you know, obviously he, he wrote the whole book, uh, you know, about medicine and why prohibition was wrong. But then he goes a step further and says, this is something that actually enhances your life and makes it better. Um, and he was definitely um, ahead of his time on that, too. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to argue marijuana shouldn't be punished. It's another thing to say wow, this is really a positive thing. And it gets back to the idea of enhancement is like, oh, I've eaten these Napoleons before, but now they're fucking amazing. Yeah. I've heard the Beatles before, but this is blowing my mind. And we, you know, we assign literally no value to that as a society when we talk about cannabis. Yeah, and I think, you know, there was probably a, a difference between his pre-cannabis using self and his post-cannabis using self in terms of like, you know, he finally understood how frustrating it can be for someone who uses cannabis and really fundamentally personally knows what it does to and for you, right? And seeing how the world treats it is like, oh, it's just extra infuriating. You know what I mean? I think you really have to use cannabis to fully understand that, you know? Okay, so on this website... Uh Dr. Grinspoon got the ball rolling personally by sharing to smoke or not to smoke a cannabis odyssey, a thoughtful, insightful reflection on his more than 40 years as a physician, an academic, an author, and a leading marijuana legalization advocate. The essay also includes a moving description of how medical marijuana helped ease the suffering of his son, Danny, who died of leukemia at age 15. Oh, wow. That's yeah. so sad. Wait, so, but he, but at the time he did know that medical cannabis could help him and then, you know, actually used it, right? Yeah, you want to know something wild? This was in the period between when he wrote the book and when he tried it himself. Wow. So he knows uh, intellectually all these things about cannabis um, but he's still never tried it himself. And this is, this is his description um, from that essay. On a normal day of chemotherapy, I hoped we could make it home from the hospital before Danny's vomiting would start. And we always had to put a big bucket next to his bed. 
but the first time he tried taking a few puffs prior to a round of treatments, he got off the gurney and said, Mom, there's a sub shop in Brookline. Can we stop for a sub sandwich on the way home? Oh, so he had an appetite. Oh, my God. See, that's that's a really, you know, heartwarming story right there because, like, you know, that kid would maybe not have had the opportunity to, you know, to feel better in that moment if his dad hadn't, you know, had his sort of journey of discovery. And it's crazy how close to home, you know, uh, cannabis really hit Grinspoon's life. I did not know that. That's incredibly tragic, you know, but... It was also, you know, part of his, you know, journey through cannabis with cannabis involved his son. And, you know, to see, to personally see it help somebody to, you know, to give therapeutic relief to somebody who's undergoing something as brutal as chemo. You know what I mean? That that must have really moved him. Yeah. And, And to be able to show that. Well, here's, so here's how it goes down. Um. Lester and Betsy, you know, Bessie knows all the same research. She's, you know, as up on things as he is. Right. Um, And she says to him a couple of times, I think we should give him some cannabis. Now, this is, there's no medical marijuana. There's no. um, Right. This would have to be some, you know, you find a guy, you black market. And Lester's still not smoking himself. Neither of them have smoked themselves at this point. And Lester, you know, he's getting all the care that Harvard Medical School can provide. You know, in, in, in one way, Danny is getting the best possible medical care anyone on earth could cope to get as the son of a Harvard Medical School professor. Yeah. On the other hand, he's very afraid that if they find out he's given cannabis to Danny that they're going to cut him off from this and they're going to ostracize him. Yeah. And he's kind of paralyzed and frozen in this moment. So what Betsy does is one day, uh, Lester, they were going for the appointment for chemotherapy. Lester uh, says, okay, I'll I'll meet you there. I'll be, you know, coming from the office and I'll meet you there and you drive Danny. Betsy gets in the car. She drives Danny to to his high school, pulls into the parking lot. She turns to him and says, Danny, which of your friends has some marijuana? (laughs) She said, I'm not going to be mad. Which of your friends has some marijuana on them? You know, this is high school in the 1970s. Oh, my God. So So he's like all of them. them. Which of the teachers or which? So he he goes, he gets a friend. uh, He comes back out. Uh, Betsy says, I need you to roll a joint for us. I need you to not tell anybody. Yeah. And uh, they pull over like a block from the place, smoke the joint before they go in. And he goes through the whole chemo and and he's fine. Like he said, he wanted a sub sandwich after. And 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 as let's as Lester described it, I just looked over at Betsy and I knew that this is what she had done. And I knew that she was right. And I knew that she was a braver person than I was. And Nice. Prop yeah. to you, Betsy. Yeah. You knew, you know what I'm saying? That a mom will do anything for her kid. A you know? mom will do anything for her kid. Yeah. And um, so then yeah. the, the, the really nice part of this is um, w- once he sees this with his own eyes, um, um, 
By allowing certain of his colleagues to witness this phenomenon firsthand of Danny going through chemo stoned and being so much better, uh, Dr. Grinspoon eventually convinced the head of the oncology department at Boston Children's Hospital to undertake a 1975 study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that for the first time demonstrated the efficacy of cannabinoids for nausea and vomiting associated with chemotherapy. Wow. And yeah, and that's like, you know, still something that is used for today very widely. And, you know, like to alleviate uh, the pain or create appetite for people who are in like late stages of all kinds of, you know, very vicious diseases. You know, that was like a big way that uh, that cannabis came to be legalized here in California. Right. Well, absolutely. And that that was a landmark study. And this is 1975. This was really the first thing in the medical journals since prohibition you know new study with medical benefits and then in 1993 dr grinspoon wrote a book called marijuana the forbidden medicine that made the case for cannabis as the safest and most useful therapeutic substance known to man three years later california passed prop 215 becoming the first state to approve the use of medicinal cannabis And I think as a direct result in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's pretty crazy. Like, you know, that now we're discovering the medical benefits of cannabis as like cannabis as a medicine. Right. But for so long, it was thought to just, you know, be palliative relief. You know what I mean? For, for, For all these people, people with AIDS, people with cancer, people with all kinds of like, you know, people with MS. Uh, with Parkinson's, you know what I mean? And, and I mean, it's just like, uh, again, like, you know, a catalyst for change, like a small discovery that's like a catalyst for change. And the funny thing is, it's not a discovery at all. Like the ancient societies have used cannabis for all these medical purposes for thousands of years and, you know, pharmacological understandings that are buried at this point. And the other thing, one of the things Lester said, you know, this is 75, so the marijuana's around. There's, you know, a lot of people smoke pot in the 70s. Yeah. And so one of the things Lester said is, uh, when I started talking about the medicinal uses, doctors didn't know what I was talking about. And a lot of nurses would come up to me and say, yeah, of course. You know, right. and we've I've quietly made this available to people for a long time nice. because they're the ones really in connection with the patients and and probably, you know, feel they don't know everything. Like Lester said in the beginning, like I had this affliction common to doctors that I thought I knew everything. Right. Oh, man, that's crazy. But you know what? I think Lester Grinspoon shows that you can go from even the most limited, you know, sort of propaganda influence mindset and with a little bit of understanding and open-mindedness and with the right influences around you. We don't all have Carl Sagan around us, but we all have the information available to us, you know, and if you really are so sure in an anti-cannabis thinking, then research it, you know, because that's the one thing I think any pro-cannabis person, any cannabis advocate can be confident in is that if you look at the science, if you look at the research, um, you know, even if you choose to ignore, uh, you know, the thousands and thousands of years of history of, you know, human cannabis interaction, you know, 
Um, you know, like you, uh, you, you gotta believe, man. You, you, you gotta, you gotta believe in the facts. You gotta look at, you know, what the people before you have come to understand about this and the journeys that they've taken and you gotta get that shit. You know what I'm saying? And that about wraps it up for this episode of great moments in weed history. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a nice little review if you're so inclined. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and SoundCloud at at GMIWH podcast. And please give us a tweet or a post if you like the show. And with that, we'll close it out. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. That's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.